Where were you 20 years ago? I remember exactly where I was, and I bet you do too. It was the last year of my seminary, and in the last year, I commuted from San Diego to Escondido, and as it was my habit, I would turn on the news in the morning before I took uh, left for seminary, and, and there it was, uh, planes flying into the World Trade Center, the plane that, that crashed into the Pentagon. Uh, 20 years ago, the 9-11 attacks uh, shocked us to our core. We never imagined that a terrorist from a faraway place a place where many Americans had never even heard of, could cause so much pain. And on that day, we collectively learned as a nation and even as a whole world, we learned and we realized how unpredictable, how short, and how painful life can be. And of course, just looking back this past year, who could have foreseen the worldwide impact of COVID-19? The raging fires, the destructive hurricanes, not to mention the myriads of things that you and I, we struggle with, cancer, unemployment, there is no list to the end or, or no end to the list of things that make our lives very difficult. And if we know anything, we know this, don't we, that life can go wrong in so many different ways and we are afraid. And because life can go wrong in so many different ways, we need a coping strategy. Otherwise, we will be simply frozen by fear. And indeed, that's what we see in this passage, chapter 44, verses 1 through 23. We see here two different coping strategies that allow us to face fear. And the first strategy is Bring your fears to God. Bring your fears to God. Now, let me ask you this question first. Is it a sin to be afraid? Is it sin to be shaken? Is it sin to be deeply troubled? You know, there are some Christians who think that it is sin to be afraid. And they say, well, because I believe in God, I'm not afraid, and you shouldn't be either. So is, is it sin to be afraid? Is it sin to be shaken? Well, consider Jesus. Jesus, the sinless man, the holiest man who has ever lived. And in John chapter 13, this is what we read. Jesus was troubled in his spirit and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Mere hours before his death, Jesus knew that one of his beloved disciples, Judas, would betray him 
to his death, and he was troubled. And the Greek word there, it means shaking. It means deep internal turmoil. It means being unsettled. That's what happened to Jesus. Or then again, think about Luke chapter 22, verse 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. I have heard that that the capillaries and veins, they burst under great duress and stress. And when Jesus was uh, considering what lay before him, he was in deep agony. He was under tremendous stress. And the word agony, being in agony, it means apprehensiveness, fear of mind when faced with impending ills, distress, or anguish. You know, Jesus knew better than anyone that God is in control. He knew better than anyone that God is able to use even the the wicked, evil things to produce out of them good and glorious things. His faith was stronger than anyone's faith. His knowledge was deeper than anyone's faith. And yet, nevertheless, Jesus was deeply and greatly troubled. And I think that tells us at least one thing, and that is it is not sin to be afraid. Because fear is a very human response to an overwhelming situation where our souls are crying out for help. It is not sin to be afraid. It is not sin to be shaken. But we do have to ask this question. When our souls are crying out for help, we need to ask, from where does our help come? From where does our help come? And so in this passage, in verse 2, this is what we read. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you and from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Jeshurun is a name that God calls Israel time to time in the Old Testament. And it's an affectionate nickname that God has for Israel. And it means something like a righteous little one. And so the picture is this. Israel is deeply afraid. They are afraid of the the impending disaster that is about to come upon them, of the Babylonian captivity. They are terrified. And as they are almost frozen in their fear, seeing no future or hope before them, God, like a father, you know, all fathers have done this. When your children are terrified, what do you do? You, You approach them and you say, hey, little one, I'm going to help you. Don't worry, my little one. And that's what God is doing here. Um, Oh, Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Oh, you, my righteous little one. I am here to help you. And what's so amazing about that is that Israel is the farthest thing from being the righteous one. 
Israel has utterly failed her noble purposes. Nevertheless, God's calling is irrevocable, meaning God, he does not take his grace back. He does not take his calling back. And that means that all the fearful fearful circumstances that Israel was facing, all the hard trials and the troubles that we face, are God's holy instruments to make his election and calling come to their fruition. And that's why in verse 2, when God says, fear not, that, that, that command, that instruction, those words are rooted in God's eternal purpose of grace and love and blessing for his people. Do you ever consider that? You know, it's interesting. Today, people have a tendency to argue about election or eternal calling as if it's some terrible thing. In the Bible, it is consistently used as the anchor for our souls when life becomes difficult. When life becomes unbearable, you're supposed to remember God called me from all eternity. He chose me from all eternity. His fatherly love is rooted in all eternity, and therefore I will be safe. And even the most difficult things that I am experiencing, they are but God's holy instruments to fulfill his calling and election. Now, but how do we know? How do we even know that God can do this? Verse 2, he's able to do this because he is the creator. He says, I am the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. That is to say, God has both power. He is the creator of all things. He brought the world out of nothing merely by speaking. There it was. He said, let there be, and there it was. So he has both the power, and he also has the track record. He has formed you from the womb, and he has watched over you from the womb, from the very beginnings of your life. So God has both the power, and he has the track record. And his spirit, he does transformative and life-giving work. Verse 3, I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And when he does, the thirsty land blossoms with flower, and the dry places become a place where streams run through. That's how we know that God is able to keep us even when life has become unbearable, when we are deeply afraid. And so verse 8, God once again says, Fear not, nor be afraid, Have I not told you uh, from of old and declared it? And we need to look back to verses 6 and 7. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. And this is the Lord saying, 
I was there from the beginning, and I will be there until the very end. I know the beginning, and I know the end. I know every step in between. I am the Lord and the master of history. I have set in motion everything that is happening, and I will bring to their completion all that is happening today. Let any other God say the same for himself. Who can say it? I, I am the Lord. I am God. Do you ever think about that? God is the Lord of history. Not only of the good things that have happened in history, but even of terrible things that have happened in history. He has been there guiding, leading, directing, and he will continue to do so. And so everything is in his hands. And everything unfolds according to his plan. And he knows and he has ordained every step in between the beginning and the end. And that is why in, in this fearful world that we live in, we realize that there is stability that we can have. There is an anchor in the storms of life because we have a Lord who is more than able to answer and still all our fears. And that's what we do when we find ourselves afraid, when we are scared, when we are shaken, when we are troubled, we bring our fears to the Lord. So that's the first strategy. Second strategy is you either bring your fears to the Lord or you turn to the idols. So in chapter 44, verses 9 through 20, is a long section about idolatry of making of idols and worshiping of idols, and it is at the same time an expose on mankind's spiritual death. Now, on the surface, this spiritual death of mankind manifests in terms of crude idolatry. It's making of figures of the deity out of wood, stone, and metal. And to be frank, this is the kind of idolatry that we don't see a lot anymore today. Although, uh, I bet you've all walked into certain Chinese restaurants or Vietnamese restaurants, and you've seen the figurines of Buddha by their door. Have you? Have you ever been uh, to Mexico, for example, and you see the various um, figures Virgin Guadalupe, for example, uh, or the Virgin Mary. And sometimes even they don't know which is which. <laughs> now, this uh, making things out of wood, stone, and metal, uh, it's not as common anymore, but they're still there. But it, this is only the crude expression of a spiritual death. But under the surface, beneath the surface, what this really is, is the problem and the tendency of trusting in our own resources instead of turning to the Lord when we are afraid, when we are scared, when we are troubled. 
we either turn to the Lord or we turn to the things that we have created, to our resources, our works. And so whether it is bowing down before crude idols or relying on some schemes of a prestigious think tank, it's the same thing. Because what we are doing, we are finding a source of strength and hope and guidance. It either comes from the Lord or it comes from man. Whether it's a crude idols or some sophisticated schemes dreamt up by uh, PhDs from fancy universities, it is the same thing. Where do you turn when you are afraid, when you are shaken? Where do you look for hope and strength and for salvation? And notice what the Lord says in verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing. Now, this is a powerful contrast to what we read earlier Remember, remember the Lord, he's the creator. He says, I am the one who formed you. On the other hand, the idols are fashioned by man. The Lord is the creator who makes. The idols are made by man. And so verse 12, the ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. The picture is this. He begins with a lump of something, whether it be a piece of log or a piece of metal, and he sharpens his tool, you know. And then he starts working at it and says, oh, my arms hurt. I got to take a little break. You know, I'm so hungry, I can't continue this anymore. And then he might go away for a little bit, or maybe for a few days, and he comes back after a little while, and it's all dusted over. And he blows the dust of it. I guess I'll get started again. Or his hand slips and makes a gouge with his chisel. And says, oh, goodness, i got to start all over. Let's just throw this into the fire and start all over. That's what idol making is. And because it's man-made, man-created idols, whether it is crude or sophisticated, can never escape the limitations of human frailty. And so you think the idol that was made by the ironsmith with the sore arms who needed to take breaks. You think that idol is going to be your strength when your strength fails. And there is also no rhyme or reason to idols. Verse 14, he cuts down cedars, a cypress tree or an oak. He takes a part of it and worms himself. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. And so he's cho- he chops down a tree. He takes for himself a piece of log. He s- splits it in the middle. And he says, eh, I guess with this pile, I'll make some food. And he turns it into ash. And with the other half, he shapes it into an idol. And he falls down before it. He prays to it and says, you are my God. Save me. And do you see how ridiculous Irrational it is. You think a piece of log that couldn't save itself from being burned crisp to an ash 
is going to now save you. Now, of course, you might say, well, you know, this is not what I do. This is not what people do today. True enough, uh, we don't express our idolatry in this way. But you realize that the same thing applies to our most sophisticated schemes. Whatever we look to, whatever we turn to, to, to find some measure of safety, they are all subject to human frailty, limitations, and human foibles. And worse, the very act of relying on our idols have a degrading effect. Verse 18, they know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. Who? Who's doing the shutting of the eyes? Is it God? Well, we read that in the New Testament, don't we? Second Thessalonians chapter 2. God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Part of God's justice on earth, you know, we tend to think that God's justice only comes after we die. But part of God's justice and judgment on earth is that God gives to people what they want. When people want idols and chase after the idols, God gives them a a powerful spirit of delusion that the true God is hidden from them. Romans chapter 1, again. You chase after sin, and to sin, God hands you over. So is it God shutting their eyes? Yes. But at the same time, there's something of an irony here. Because 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And the ironic thing is that the idols are utterly impotent. They have no power to do anything except one thing, and one thing they do really well. They make the situations worse. The only thing that the idols can do really well is to blind the eyes of people so that they may not see the light of Christ. So who is shutting the eyes of those who turn to man-made things in to find peace and help. It's both God and the idol. It's both God's judicial judgment of giving man what they desire, and it is also the ironic power of the idols to make the situation worse. And so these are the two strategies. When we are fearful, when we are scared, when we are shaken, what do you do? Do you bring your fears to the Lord? Or do you turn to your devices, rely on your schemes, your plans, or your resources? What do you do? And that brings us to the third and the last point. Remember these things. Remember these things. I don't need to remind you that we live in a dangerous world. 
a wrong person coughs at you, might bathe for you. A careless driver on the freeway that might be for you. you know, we live in a dangerous world. And the temptation to rely on our resources can be very strong. But verse 21, the Lord says, Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. That is to say, faithful living in a dangerous world requires a thinking faith. God says, remember these things. Remember these things. We need a thinking faith. We need a faith that is well-instructed, a mind that is sharply engaging, that remembers God's word, his past works, and his promises. Now, by the way, this is not, um, not a teaching against man's cultural achievements. This is not a call for us to abandon all technology, all work, all advancement, and embrace a kind of an Amish lifestyle. That's not what this is about. It is the scripture that teaches us to subdue all things, to produce, to improve, to grow in all areas of life. So this is not a teaching that is against advancing or improving the things about life. It is rather, where do you turn to for your help? To, on whom do you rely? And who gives you peace? What gives you peace? And the Lord says, remember. Remember who I am. Remember what I have told you. Remember what I have done. And remember my promises. And what is true generally is especially true of salvation. Verse 22, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. 20 years ago on the eve of 9-11, our church, like virtually every other church, we had a prayer meeting. Um, and I can still see the face of the people who are in that prayer meeting. And I remember immediately following 9-11, there was a brief but intense spiritual awakening. The sudden realization of evil stirred up many people to seek God. But unfortunately, it was only a passing interest for some people. But we must remember, because you see, loved ones, our greatest danger is not the usual suspects that we think about. 
our greatest danger is not the terrorists, it's not the Taliban, it's not cancer, it's not the economy, it's not who the president is or not. Our greatest danger is that one day we will meet God who will judge us impartially and accurately. And on that day, to whom will you turn? Where will your help come from? Who is going to blot out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist? It's Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who has promised and who died and rose again that our sins may be completely wiped away, blotted out, blown away like the morning sun blows away the mist and the fog. When you feel guilty, when you feel spiritually wrong, turn to Jesus. For it is in Jesus that your sins, my sins, are forgotten, erased, and blown away. And Jesus will be your Redeemer. Amen. Now let's pray together. Father, we turn to you once again. And oh, teach us that we may turn to you every day and every moment. Lord, it's, it's a mystery that we cannot understand that, that we would rather rely on our own strength and our schemes instead of embracing your grace and your help. We are proud and arrogant to the core of our being, and we are unteachable. Thank you, God, that you have freed us from that bondage, that you have called us into the light of Jesus Christ, and we pray in his name and for his sake that we may know your grace, that we may know your peace. Father, I pray for all the saints in this room who, who face many difficult trials, who are troubled, who are weary, who are broken. Lord, would you comfort them Comfort them with your presence, with your grace, and may they find help from your throne of grace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.